Today we're going to talk about Fleabag. This show has come from unknown to me two weeks ago to my all-time top five and maybe my favorite dark comedy ever. These guys that are with me today introduced me to this show. Rylan, let's start with you. How did you find out about Fleabag? Yeah, um, I was mowing the lawn, uh, listening to a podcast, and they did their top 10 best shows of the year so far, 2019. I made a mental note. I finished Barry, which we need to talk about at some point, Spies. And then I, the next thing I watched was Fleabag. I was just like, uh, at first, I wasn't sure what to think about it because I, I didn't have any context for it. I never, uh, I, I didn't know what it was about. And you don't know where it's going. By the end of the first season, I thought, this is a pretty decent show. Um, it's good enough to watch the second season. But then by the end of the second season, it had made it in easily into my top three of the year. Meredith, how did you come to watch the show? And it's a weird question, I know, but there's a lot of television out there right now. There's so many different uh, streaming services, and we all love uh, movies and television. So we get so inundated, I feel like somebody has to tell us to watch this. So how did it come about for you? Uh, mine's not nearly as interesting as Ryland's or like a personal recommendation. Uh, honestly, whenever it came out, uh, it was just something new on Amazon. And I thought, well, if the premise sounds okay, I'll give it a shot. And I thought it was hilarious. Um, season one, as you guys know, is really great. And I was super excited that they came out with season two because there wasn't supposed to be a season two. Just watched it and was hooked. I think I've watched both seasons three times now i've gotten other people to watch it i'll watch it again it it gets better it's still just as funny every time justin did you did you participate in the writing of this show i did i was a ghostwriter on the show oh uh pwb uh <laughs> called me up and P-dubs. uh p-dubs and uh said hey i need some good material about crappy dudes and a very compelling uh lead female character like that's right up my alley like say no more uh actually i came to the show through uh killing eve which mm-hmm. i saw first and loved me it. too but i had no clue about fleabag even then isn't that weird yeah yeah, yeah. and you can tell the truth that you were brett gilman's uh, beard consultant on the show <laughs> and that's how it came about I gave so you some, didn't really know just, much about the script they didn't let you read tips, the script but. just some tips <laughs> like this is how you're the worst person on <laughs> they, earth they, you know. they they bring me in every once in a while when you know somebody is having some trouble with their beard and they need some help i just <laughs> go in some light massaging and uh I just uh, I work it out for him, you know. But uh, but yeah, that's it. So I uh, I watched Killing Eve and I loved it. Another show with very strong female characters and relationships. And then uh, yeah, I I loved it so much. I started looking at her other stuff, and uh, this one came up. It's like, well, how have I not heard of this before? And I binged it all in two days. Who among us has not? Who among us? Has, I know Meredith is like, not only have I watched this in two days, I've seen it like three times in three weeks. So. <laughs> I mean, I'm yeah. almost, I should be ashamed I say that, but nope. It's five uh, hours at this point no of TV, really a binge, though. I don't know. I mean, let's, let's I mean, talk when, about the. When, I don't care when, if it <laughs> is. People have jobs and lives. <laughs> then, yeah. I think so. Let's talk about the origins of this. Um, you mentioned. Um, Phoebe Walker-Bridge is the creator of this show, and you mentioned the creator of Killing Eve, which I think is a good show. Um, this is a great show. Uh, I'd like Killing Eve, uh, but um, I still, after watching that, wasn't aware of this for some reason. Um, she created this, and she, of course, the plays the um, the title character. Wow, just really impressed with her. And we'll talk a little bit more about that fourth wall and just the brilliance of that. But this started with her as a one-woman play. Am I right about that? Does anybody know about really kind of the the uh, origins of, of this story in particular? Yeah, I read something about that, how it started as like a like a challenge, right? About uh, she was supposed to write like a like a ten-minute uh, one-woman play or something like at a comedy show, and uh, that's where it, that was the origin of it. But I don't know anything about uh, what it was about. I'd love to have seen it. Oh, yeah. And that makes that right there, knowing the fact that it was supposed to be done live and it was a one-woman show, makes complete sense of 
maybe why they never you don't really know her name and the like breaking the fourth wall the whole like facial expressions to the camera like all of that kind of stuff to me that helps like okay maybe that's why it was you know filmed from that perspective yeah definitely you can see it totally as a as a play she's just brilliant in that role it's perfect breaking the fourth wall while there or as jesse would say breaking the third wall um she does a great job it's interesting, even when you're close to 40, you still take the time to make fun of your brother who's not on the podcast. <laughs> you know who I'm going to dig right now? Jesse Collins. Well, he did it on the, he said that on the last ball. podcast. What kind of moron? I'm just, it's just one of those things that you say to bring the listeners back in to remember the previous podcast in it's which a call he said the breaking the third wall. And also, keep your brother in check. That's right, Jesse. If you're listening, I'm going to humble my brother. He probably had a good day when I'm a little heat check. You got him. Oh, my gosh. The interesting thing for me about the fourth wall is at first it's like, you know, I'm kind of conventional when it comes to things like this. And I was like, well, I don't like the fourth wall. You know, it's just kind of hokey. This is brilliant use of the fourth wall because that is her wall that's up. That represents that she insulates herself with this fourth wall that's her she has this dialogue with herself and that way because she's lonely she doesn't have the relationship uh, with her uh, father or her sister they don't have the kind of emotional depth um, between each other to really share their feelings and say no this is tough I need help with this that's a major theme of this show is you can be close to people and not willing to open up to them because well, they don't really have the emotional equity to do that. They really want to, but they just can't. And it all comes out in different ways for all three of them. And she lives a very lonely experience. And really, as the show, as the series goes on, you learn to understand that fourth wall is there for her emotional protection. And uh, we can talk a little bit about how that wall gets broken, but I find it to be brilliant use and in, in a use of the fourth wall that I don't think I've ever noticed before, have y'all? Like in television or film, where it's like, like when the when the therapist says, do you have any friends? She looks at the camera like, oh, not real ones. Yeah, I don't think I've ever... Are you close with your family? Well, no, not really. That fourth wall, and at the end, when she waves them off, uh, this Meredith explained this to me, when they waves off the fourth wall when she leaves the bus stop, it's like, no, I'm, I'm ready to move on w- without this protection, right? Yeah, I don't think I've ever seen the use of breaking the fourth wall, the fourth wall, used in such like a in such a narrative, narratively driven way. I mean, it's definitely like at first when I first started watching the show, I thought it was just kind of you know it was funny and it was cheeky, and she has that like she has the best looks, right? Like she she just has this. It, it, the like she she does it so well she nails it yeah she has a she just has a very natural charisma and the way that she uses those looks it's always it's always perfect like her timing is great the look she uses are are great like it's probably something that she had to spend a lot of time in but but she makes it look so natural no question the the complexity of that like the the there are times when she's going back and forth so quickly Meredith, do you think she's able to pull that off besides being an amazing actor because she conceived the dialogue and conceived the show, that she has the ultimate vision for how to weave in and weave out of that? We talked about that before. She, um, well, I mean... Do, do, you, do you think that's why she's able to pull that off so seamlessly? Because she's behind the the whole thing, right? Yeah, she's, well, She conceived that idea. Well, I mean, maybe, maybe, but I mean, also going back to the fact that it was supposed to be just a one-woman sketch where you would be sort of interacting with an audience helps that. But yeah, the fact that she wrote that, <coughs> sorry, I will. Can we sorry, all just take on. a good cough real fast? Yeah. I got <clears throat> yeah. I think we're all sick. Everybody take a drink of water. You're good, man. <laughs> it's, the bron- it's the bronchitis, you guys. Oh, it's got me. It's got me. Okay. Um, um, yes. Meredith Peden died at her home Saturday after complications. <laughs> For bronchitis and a visit to Twin Cakes. Listen, it's serious. Bronchitis is not a joke. <laughs> After secondhand smoking four cartons of cigarettes. 
which is an impressive feat done in just two hours. I think that she is able to do it because you're right. Uh, she's the one who wrote it. Um, and so, yes, in her mind's eye, she knows exactly how she wants it to be delivered. The writing would be hilarious. It would still be a really great show, but it makes it because I don't think she could have written that for someone else and they have nailed the type of look that she is able to do or the facial expressions like when she meets the guy on the bus with the teeth and then he's talking to her and she keeps making like faces to the camera is one of my favorite scenes. It is hilarious. Her face is disgusted, but then she snaps right back to talking to him. And I just don't think it would be, it wouldn't have been the same. It wouldn't be funny if someone else did it. So my favorite thing about the fourth wall is they use it. Yep. To show, to illustrate how the priest is getting to a level of emotional intimacy with her that no one else can come close to. No one notices her talking to the camera, except he does, and he get he sees it and calls her, and that illustrates that he's kind of gotten to this level with her, and he understands her, and he can see this. Uh, protective layer that she's putting up don't you think Justin and and I think they wait patiently for that and that's one reason he has this just big impact on her right because he can see through it because we get I think we're led to believe that he has led the life she's living now and had a lot of pain and that's what's uh, led him to uh, this uh, big lifestyle change that he has and so I think he understands her in a way that even her family doesn't He's able to quote unquote penetrate that wall, right? Is the breaking the fourth wall, and I think in the so uh, yeah, I think that's uh, I think that's absolutely correct, and I think it gets back to what you were saying before, how she uses that wall, something that protects herself and keeps everybody out because she's obviously had this this trauma in her past. She is feeling so much guilt about that that she thinks she deserves to be alone. But then also get back to when we first kind of really see the purpose of what that wall is is when she was in the the therapy session right that you were that you were mentioning before where she talks about her loneliness her how she doesn't really have anybody and then when the when the therapist asks her about it she she says she says that there's always somebody there right uh, that's the first time that she really directly addresses us or the audience or whoever it is that she's talking to i mean we get like we could get extremely meta with it uh but as a character as her only you know friend or confidant but i mean when you think about that in terms of the character and the tv show it's it's nobody right it's like she's talking into into the void so to speak so when he comes along and she kind of allows him to get close then he starts in essence, taking over that role of whatever it is that the breaking the fourth wall was fulfilling in her. So I like I like I said I thought it was a really brilliant use of like breaking the fourth wall as something more than just you know a cheeky aside. It was actually driving the narrative in a way. I was saying that um, I think the first season, the way she breaks the wall in the first season is is amazing but I, I don't think it becomes really brilliant until the second season and he starts noticing and i think it's more than just her letting him in i think he's the only one in the series that that looks at her uh as having some value right he's the only one in the series that treats her like something other than an, an object he's the only one that sees the real her and it, that's shown by him being able to to see uh, her talking to us he doesn't quite know what's going on. Every time it happens, it like gives you chills. You're just watching it, and he's like, "What? What are you doing?" I, I just loved every one of those scenes. Yeah, the first time it does it is just like like such a great moment. Like, oh yeah, the, like it's at the end of I think like the second or third episode of uh, the second season, and it's just like such a brilliant moment, right? Uh, but uh, I, I remember reading. Uh, back when I first watched it, I read a couple reviews, and I can't remember where I read it, but there was something that kind of stuck with me about their the nature of their relationship and how, like, I don't think that it's really a coincidence, right? That I, that they that they have these sort of uh, these parallel lives 
family mm-hmm. of alcoholics, and he goes the path of choosing God, another, in essence, invisible being, <laughs> and she has kind of chosen nothing, right? And uh, and but they but it's it's just another way that their stories kind of parallel and why they have such a strong connection. You know, the other reason as we've already talked about is just that their their paths are so similar too, right? Their their pasts. Um, and I love the fact that foxes are out to get him. Uh, <laughs> like, I think that, that represents, like, yeah. And, it, and you know, you don't see him, he, he makes up this story or you think he's making it up about these foxes that are always out to get him. And you think he's, he's just making it up because she startled him or something at one point. And, um, in the very last scene, she's waves goodbye to the, the camera, right? And it, he's walks off and a fox is falling and it's <laughs> like, I took that as like his demons are still around. Like, Maybe because she goes, he went that around. way. Because <laughs> it, it walks right in front of the, the bus stop. Yeah. She kind of says, <laughs> he went that way, right? And then yeah. and then uh, she walks off the other way. Uh, it's just brilliant. The way they ended it was brilliant. Rylan, that's a really good segue to what I wanted to say next. Obviously, the priest, after I saw the first uh, season in two and a half hours, I texted Meredith. She said, you just wait mm. for the second <laughs> season. You just wait for the priest. You wait uh, for both the sisters... Priest. The characters, they immediately think the priest is attractive. Uh, Meredith, every female I've talked to thought the priest was amazing. He was. Because um, he is. And I think he gives that perfect thing. The fox thing, like, he has an innocence to him, although he's rough around the edges. And it is like uh, the fine actor that plays him does a great job. Andrew Scott, he's written I great. his name. Andrew Scott. Yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> Andrew Scott, it's kind of hard to explain, but he because I think he's turned his life over to this worthy cause... Um, he has this innocence, although he we we obviously it's intimated that he's got this rough background and and all that, and it makes him I think irresistible to Fleabag and to pretty much every woman I've ever talked to about this show. Well, and he going back to I can't remember if it was Rylan or what you said, Nathan, how he treats her not as an object. So mm-hmm. when he speaks to her, like even at let's say episode one of season two, her family hot mess they don't care they don't care about what she's been doing to improve her life because the beginning of that episode is her showing how she was stopping drinking eating healthy you know kind of getting herself together right processing grief mm. and she takes way. the fall for her sister right there exactly so she's doing all of this and none of them have anything nice to say to her it's uh you know they're just patronizing her asking her about her little cafe and you know but they're not truly invested and he's actually someone who has an actual conversation and actually wants to listen to the answer right um and i think he's the only one yeah. not wildly inside of himself well, exactly they're not projecting well-meaning but they're not they think about other themselves and and i love that thing of him is he's definitely you know outside of his own self yeah, and I, I was, it was a really good way to start the season with an extra character because, uh, right. like, they also did it like, I think it started a year later, something like that. So they've had time mm-hmm. for every for all of those wounds that were opened at the end of season one to just kind of fester for a long time mm-hmm. and all that resentment to build. Oh. And, and she became strange kind of right through it by actually yeah. showing a you- little empathy and. <laughs> And Meredith, you mentioned how she had made great progress in a year, and she makes, uh, although it's tough, she makes progress um, in season two. And I, I think the big reason for that, and I, I think we can take this lesson, her family can't really reach her uh, for a number of reasons, right? The big turning point for her in season one is a stranger, the banker, and of course, he's the banker. He doesn't have a name, which is a kind of an awesome little caveat to the show, right? That very we know very few people's actual name, right? Like Fleabag, we'd never know what her actual name is. And there's a lot of little brilliant nuance to this, um, uh, like that. The banker <laughs> in the hilarious in the first episode where she takes starts to hear top off and the whole bit. And and then in the hilarious episode when they go to that women's retreat and they're screaming <laughs> slut and she's like yeah they're like burning the dolls oh. she's trying to find them it's so oh and again the dolls it's just yeah. so weird and she, of course she's so curious about it uh, well 
she is absolutely floored by his honesty in the monologue that he gives about missing his wife and just want to go back to the simple things and what his sort of kind of sexual misdeeds have cost him has a greater impact in that two-minute conversation than anything that anyone has said since Boo died. Hmm. And at the end, she at the at the end of season one, she is able to turn around and tell a stranger things that she's not willing to tell the wall. She's not willing to tell her family. How many how many times does her father or her sister say, "Are you okay?" And she says yes. And we all know she's clearly not okay in season one. But this stranger who has been willing to uh, admit fault and open up to her, she's willing to do the same. And at the end of season one, she says, "Look, I'm trying to fill this hole because I have so much pain." And we know the, that her mother passed away, and that was tough, and she wasn't dealing with that very well. And then the thing with Boo is just absolutely tragic because, of course, they picked the loveliest, most like adorable British person in, in history, right, who is just this great person. Who doesn't want to be best friends with Boo, right? Like the face she does. Do you guys remember that where she's like, I just saw the most beautiful man, and I'm going to show you his face. Are you ready? Oh, and yeah, they pick out the door. And she goes, is he, is he biracial? And she's like, yes. And I'm just like, okay, this is <laughs> so. She opens up after those things, and obviously she's going through. She goes, and I'm afraid that you know my sexuality's going. No one's going to want me. And she just, she's so visceral. Even just admitting that to another person is so cleansing. I think that's the big um, seminal moment for her to to do like you like you mentioned to Meredith. Uh, we have get this montage of her doing like burpees or whatever and then uh you know eating eating better and just kind of getting her life together and so i think we it can't be lost that you mentioned the priest at first you know obviously there's sexual tension there or whatever but he doesn't want anything from her and just like the banker didn't want anything from her and those that sacrifice that men don't usually make can have such a positive impact on people and that's what I get from that it's like think about it where does she similarly get the courage to move forward is from those two people not her family right yeah I mean I think in the whole dynamic of her family she's probably like the dramatic irony there is like as much of a mess as she is she's probably the most open and honest and of all of them right like and that's mm. kind of what her that's what her dad was getting at at the end, right? Where that's why everything was so hard for her is because she's is because she feels everything, right? Because she, yeah, because she's got so but she much doesn't love get in it her, directly, right? She's like, I don't feel pain. <laughs> <laughs> she doesn't. Yeah. Oh man, so much of that. Like, obviously, I texted Meredith when I was watching this. I said, you know, I like prudish women, um, and I I, I loved Claire. I just loved her. I found her attractive, weirdly. <laughs> it was just like she, like she's like, don't jog in a cemetery. Don't flaunt your life. And it's like, and she, she's so smart. She anticipates everything that her sister's thinking because she's her sister. And she's like, don't make a comment about my big office. Don't whatever. And it's just like, she is so, she is so messed up. And she, she doesn't use sex as an outlet. She doesn't do that, whatever, but she uses everything else. And she's in such self-denial about what a, creep she's married to and all that so they all three of them the father and the two daughters they have the same problems and they all sort of deal with them poorly in different ways and of course it's hysterical to see interesting thing about this show is line to line scene to scene it is maybe the funniest thing i've ever seen since seinfeld it's just like you go back and watch it's a stitch i mean like and it's like everything is like the of british humor so it's all subtle and it's all whatever like her passive aggressive godmother is like the perfect caricature of a horrible person who is smiling at you and saying something horrible about you to your face and smiling at you. And it's so sort of uh, clever that you don't know if you're supposed to be mad. And it's like literally everything that comes out of that woman's mouth to Fleabag is awful and with a smile. And it get, and that's brilliant. Yeah, and her comments, like they're pretty, I guess, just kind of passive aggressive in front of other people. But when it is just her and Fleabag, it, she's still not coming right out and saying something, but sh it's a lot meaner. You can see, like, the comment she made. She wouldn't have said this in front of 
her family, but she said, your father and I always did say you were so like your mother after a few drinks, you know, in the hallway at the home when she shoved her and then she slapped uh, the stepmother or Fleabag was slapped. She just wants to be hateful. And you could. Does she slap or punch everybody in her family except for her father? Because in the first episode, well, she pushed. She pushed. Her sister the goes god, in for a she hug. And she slaps her. <laughs> <laughs> do you, do, okay, so so does she attack them physically? Like as in that first episode, when she goes for the hug and she slaps her, just she has no instinct for a hug, and then obviously she um, beautifully punches uh, um, old buddy, um, her her, her brother-in-law mm-hmm. and um, and Martin, and then. Uh, of course, the godmother thing. So that's interesting. I think they have these little themes where, like, she's going to have to beat up everybody. There was a point in the second season where Claire is just so grumpy, like, all the time, right? And like you said, she just holds everything in. She finds out that Fleabag is in love with this priest and just starts laughing. And just hearing her laugh, I started laughing just because, she, like, she had finally looked happy. And it was because <laughs> she was laughing at her sister. But, like, it was her... Uh, the way that she that she portrayed this character, it was so there was so much tension that when it finally let go, I physically felt it. Like she just did a great job. That's well said. When she got that haircut yeah. and looked like a pencil, yes. I mean that was really the turning point. <laughs> Maybe that was the oh, scene. Man. Maybe that was. I the look like scene. a pencil. I look like a pencil. <laughs> and they go back and confront uh, Anthony. Uh, they pull and out he the pulls out of the trash bag. Exactly He's like, "I'm sorry, Anthony. See you next week. I'm sorry." That's great. <laughs> Yeah, like she gives a whole montage about hair is everything. He's like, look, this is—that's <laughs> uh, such this show a, tra- is a tragedy of her sister, right? Where like yeah. even when she tries to do something wild and crazy like her sister is, because that's where all that resentment stems, stems from. It still right. just goes mm-hmm. horribly wrong. Like mm-hmm. she wishes she could be like her, right? You know, like they're both jealous of each other for different reasons. Mm-hmm. Well. Her her sister, and in the first episode of season one at the dinner party, she says, you know, you just stuff all this stuff down here, and it, and that's just how you do it. That's being an adult. And, of course, the priest is like, the priest is like, I don't. <laughs> and then, so that's what, we, she does these hilariously weird things, like gets that haircut. She's wearing that weird, like, ski jumper uh, in, in, like, a non sequitur in season one, where it's like she always does something weird, like, because she doesn't know how to tell somebody and admit fault. I think she was kind of the perfect um, child growing up, and she just still cannot cope with any any sort of um, letdown or doing anything wrong. And her mind is so quick that she can almost pull it off, which people, they can almost pull it off, they drive themselves crazy. And she's a perfect illustration of that. Like, she has no outlet. It, and I think that's what happens to people in real life. I think uh, you can learn a lot from this show. Um, I learned a lot of, you know... Um, maybe sexual and and cursed things. Maybe I didn't know this. It is a crude show. Um, uh, Tony Turbo's here tonight. He's uh, we're celebrating his birthday, and he's watching some of this show earlier tonight. And he's like, he just said, "This show is edgy." <laughs> <laughs> I mean, episode like, wow. one, come on. Yeah, if you can get in episode one. I mean, that's no. I didn't like, show him episode go. one of season one. I was like, <laughs> I am not watching that with a father figure. Oh, we started with season two. There is no way. No yeah. way. Absolutely not. No way. (laughs) Oh, man. So you mentioned earlier, Meredith, you mentioned her mother, and she is, um, I just thought of this, put it all together really today. She, we don't know a whole lot about her. She dies of cancer not that long ago. I believe, um, actually, her parents had divorced. Fleabag's parents, it seems like they had split up before she got sick and died. Is that right? I'm not, I I can't remember. It seems like that may have been the, situation but honestly i do you guys remember i don't Justin remember that I, I don't recall any i don't remember if they so. gave I, us I thought, any details she she died and then he hooked up with the godmother yeah, yeah. I, because I, remember I, I don't recall a separation i didn't either and i was like uh, nathan had asked me about that the other day and i was like well maybe that was but uh when they in season two when they're doing a flashback to the funeral and boo is there you know, mm. they're back in the back of the church, and she goes up there and is, as she was saying, swooping in. Mm-hmm. You know, she said, you know, does she have no shame? Mm. You know, and she was like, you know, she and Boo knew what was up, but Claire thought, 
you know, no, no, she's, she's not doing that. And that's exact. That's like, she's just been waiting for something to happen to swoop in and immediately control him and keep this wall between him and the girls. Absolutely. She's jealous. So her mother is a, is this kind of the spirit of the show? How uh, they, they say innumerable times, you just like your mother, you have your mother's wit. So we feel that spirit and that hilarious callback of the statue of the nude statue that she steals in the first episode. <laughs> <laughs> so we know that and she keeps stealing it back and it is it is when you think of it after knowing that, you know, the last in the last episode her godmother says, you know, it's interesting you took that one because that is of your mother. And of course she steals it back. So mm-hmm. through this whole time, think about it, her mother helps her out in crisis, right? She replaces <laughs> the, the, when she hilariously breaks it, she goes, don't touch that. It's worth thousands of dollars. And she picks it up and it just explodes. <laughs> what does she go get? So all that is an allegory to, you know, the people that leave us that meant the most to us, they still, their spirit is still with us in a way, even if it's our memory of them. And so when you think of it like that, her mother is a character and throughout this whole thing, at the, at the last um, minute of this episode, before she walks away from the bus stop, the last thing she does is not talk to the priest. It's she gets out the statue and she caresses the statue. So her, her mother's spirit, you know, lives on. And I thought that was just beautiful. Well, it's more her coming to terms with her grief, too. So, yeah, like, she's, that's a, that's she's having sure to deal with life. her grief. You know, her mother passed away before Boo, and so she was grieving. And then all of this happened with the stepmother and her father and they weren't really given that time as a family to grieve, which I mean, and people act out in different ways. Her sister is acting out in an uptight and controlling way. And she is acting out by drinking and sleeping with everybody. You know, she's dealing with grief differently. So I think like the back and forth about that statue, you know, it's sort of like maybe it's given her some peace in that because then you roll into you know, things start, are going well for her. Does that make sense? And her dad is just Absolutely. the most unhelpful person oh. on the planet. He can't finish a sentence. And Well, how many like, dads are like that? <laughs> they, they're well-meaning, but they cannot help you yeah. emotionally. There's a lot. I think um, all these characters are representations of what we see, like the passive-aggressive stepmother, right? And the sister that uh, just needs you so much, but you you guys just can't connect, right? And the jealous um, in-law, as far as like her brother-in-law, and her, how many people have dads that just look at you and wish they could solve all your problems, and they cannot find even one word. Well, Not much less of the words, right? Yeah, but I don't think that the dad is... He's not like an idiot, right? Like, he's not... Right. He's, no. he's not... Uh, like, I think he knows... Like, he knows that she's awful to them, and he gets all that. But at the same time, this through line of the entire series about being unable to process or express um, grief and and trauma, the way that it shows through him is that he he wasn't able to process his wife's death either, and he just went to the nearest thing that was going to give him just wanting some to connect to level somebody. of love and comfort, you know, right. regardless of, the, uh, of what it cost him. A distraction. And we don't know what their relationship was like before their mother passed away. They may have been very close with their mother, and then she passes away, and he does has clearly zero idea how to connect with them. Because if they had been close... I think he would still know how to connect with them. He wouldn't be as detached, even if his situation was the same with the stepmother, godmother, godmother, stepmother, whatever she is. That wouldn't have made him unable to connect with them. He's so out of touch. He knows nothing about either of them. Mm -hmm. I took the inference that their mother took care of a lot of that stuff, and he was sort of there and like, yeah, I agree with your mother. It seemed like there was a lot of that because the care that he has for the daughters is a lot. You know, he sends them to the feminist conferences, but he's clueless. <laughs> does all the stuff. Think about this: when they're walking down the aisle and he's getting married, it's not just that that his le- that his foot hurts; 
it, it's symbolic that although they have a bit of a fractured relationship, they went months. Like he missed his birth, her birthday in the in the first episode of season two. It's like, oh, I missed your birthday. Here's this card. Here's this here's this uh, voucher for counseling. <laughs> he goes from that and not willing to do that to when he's walking down the aisle, she walks down with him, and it's symbolic of, you know, I am. You are the closest representation of your mother. You're the greatest memory of your mother. You're the likeness of your mother. And I'm walking down the aisle with somebody else, and I have to let you go. And that's why at the end, when he's, she, he keeps grabbing. He can't let right? her go. And he has the boy, can't let her go. That That's not a, you know, that's, that's an allegory. And he tries. So he, I think that's trying to illustrate the character is well-meaning. But just none of them are capable. And it gives you the idea that maybe uh, before she died, she was the one that kind of brought all that together. And they just are kind of lost emotionally without her, maybe. Is there one healthy relationship in this show? That's a good question to ask. That is a good question, and. Boo and Boo and Fleabag, that may have yeah. been the healthiest one yeah. that you could until, that you could really until pinpoint the off the top of my head. One, Boo and Fleabag, the banker and Fleabag, yeah. and then the priest. Even as complicated as the priest and Fleabag, and and uh, Claire and Claire, and that's brief. <laughs> but that was, that's good, and that's so funny. How about the? Oh uh, man, that's perfect. The, the sister and the creepy stepson. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> Jacob, no! Jacob, when no! When he's in the underwear trying to get in the bathroom, no! At the wedding, and they're like, and thank Where's you Claire? for that song, which is called, Where is Claire? <laughs> Did y'all know that kid is like 25 years old? It makes it even funnier to me. He's, yeah. he's hilarious. <laughs> Claire? Claire? Where's Claire? Oh, so funny. He's so creepy. <laughs> But also makes sense because his dad is so gross. Brett Gelman yeah. is. Oh my he, goodness! I I know he like I know that's not the only kind of thing he ever plays. But man, does he do that great? Like you feel by just watching him. I don't know if you guys feel this way, but like as a woman, I know what that kind of person feels like. It, like in real life, you see them and you immediately number one want to wash your hands, but also take a shower. Like they make you feel that gross. <laughs> Yeah, he, <laughs> Justin, have you experienced this? Meredith, Justin, <laughs> it, Justin can hear you. I'm right stop. here, Meredith. Jeez. Listen. <laughs> so, for me, at the end, they're not going to be together. But she leaves with a resolve. And she is better. And she's ready to move on without the camera, without the fourth wall. She's ready to shed that, like we mentioned earlier. And what um, the priest says uh, during the, uh, the wedding speech, he says, when you find someone you love, it feels like hope. And it's not that they were not going to be together or were going to be together. It's like when you have the capacity to really love somebody, like she just, just loved him, I think that, it, when she heard that, I think she that was the inference that she was okay with that because I don't think she let herself love after Boo. I don't think she thought she deserved it, like you mentioned earlier, Meredith. And that was the cathartic thing for me is that relationship wasn't about it lasting and them being together. It was about he taught her that you can get close to someone again. He taught her that love is redemptive. And uh, that's why she was willing to leave the camera by, and I, I think we left her in in a good place, although she was obviously heartbroken for the moment. I felt like I, I felt like she had sort of kind of kind of moved on permanently. What do y'all, do y'all, did y'all have that positive feeling all, as tough of, as it was for her at the end? Well, I think that she, I think that's probably the truth, but also she probably thought, now this person sees me like they love me, I can move on, but she's a good person. Like, I think the way she was acting out in season one, she had done this one thing and she just thought I'm a terrible person. And so I'm just going to keep acting like, you know, I'm people expect this behavior of me. I'm just going to continue it. And I think having someone see her in a different light and respect her and treat her that, you know, just because you've made a mistake doesn't mean you can't that you're, you know, intrinsically bad and that you can't move on. 
Yeah, I agree. I think it's it's like it was a it was very bittersweet where you recognize that you know they made a they made a great pair. He obviously uh, chose God over her, but after everything she went through and going through that relationship, she decided that she was actually worthy of receiving that love and didn't need those walls anymore. Right? Like the walls that she puts up with the uh, uh, to keep everybody else out. And I want to say I really appreciated their take on how they did the priests and and religion. In general, yeah, I think you could take this as a, as a pretty decent defense of Christianity. Yeah, in its own it way, wasn't. Weirdly. Yeah, it wasn't. It didn't push either way too hard. It allowed the priest to follow his calling, that what he believed was his calling, even though he screwed up, right? Uh, in, in at least uh, as far as his his priestly oaths or whatever are concerned. But I think it was ultimately respectful to whatever position you take. So many shows just aren't nowadays, and I appreciated that. How about in counseling when she says, are you in love with someone? Um, yes. Someone that you're not sleeping with? Yes. Why can't you? Is he in a relationship? Yes. <laughs> you could say that. <laughs> what kind of relationship? With who? Well, let's just say it's the kind of relationship where they pick your clothing. <laughs> it's so clever. Uh, line to line, this show is so funny. In the aggregate, it's so sad, especially in season one, and then... And then sad and then redemptive in season two. That's what I love about it. Uh, in the moment, it's just one funny thing after another. And then it, this bigger picture, um, there's a lot of things. Like, I do think this is not a perfect, but a, a pretty good. And I appreciate, um, you know, her as the creator of the show. It, like you were mentioning, Meredith, like, the priest is an imperfect person. Obviously, he has some skeletons in his closet and is rough around the edges with cursing and drinking and he makes a mistake, and he goes against his oath, right, and, and uh, his oath of celibacy. But an imperfect person can have a really positive impact on a lot of people. And he says, yeah, I, we all have doubt, and faith is a stretch. But why believe in something so terrible, like we're all just going to be worm food, he says, when you can believe in something so great? And so he's this representation of this person, this caring person, this imperfect person that has found something that's better. And he says, you know, I treated people poorly and I have so much guilt about that. In this way, I'm a help to people. And all this relationship, all this stuff is just more complicated now. This is difficult, but uh, but it matters. And he finds this peace. See, he has this innocence and sweetness with like, he's wearing a Buffalo Bill shirt as pajamas. Like this guy who's been obviously been through all this stuff and, and had this tough childhood and all this stuff that's uh, inferred, he's he has a childlike innocence to him. He's afraid of foxes. He, he's wearing pajamas, right? Um, and, the, and I think that kind of shows this sort of impact that his faith has had on him. I appreciated that deeply. And, um, and, and I think it's um, against the stereotype of what people think about religious people alive. Did, did y'all kind of get the same feel uh, for that? I, I absolutely yeah thought he would he uh, was exactly what you were saying you know just uh, he he's has that innocence at first but also like the rough edges his flaw I think in the show isn't that like he was weak and he broke his his vows it's that he's trying to fix Fleabag right uh, at one point in the uh, cafe uh, instead of like just being there for her and listening to her he's like oh, I'm just trying to help you and it it's like, oh, like she thought, you know, there was a relationship there and that he just wanted to be with her. But he was he kind of let it out that he was just hanging out with her because he wanted to fix whatever was wrong with her. And I, I, I feel like, though, part of his I think he genuinely enjoyed being around her. But I also oh, I think he saw her. But he fights his sexual tension to try to. Reach I think, her. though, he falls in. It's a yeah, battle. I think I think he falls into the trap, though, that we all fall into so often of needing her as a project like he needs to fix her i think he realizes that uh, eventually but that even though he is the one that connects the most to her he still feels like he needs to to fix her instead of just be there for her and no no. i didn't i didn't go there what do y'all think guys i well i mean if it started out that way maybe but i just like there was just 
sexual tension between the two of them from episode one. I mean, when he comes out and like bums a cigarette off of her, there's a lot of sexual tension there. But then also, I mean, I don't, I don't know if I've thought of him seeing her as a project or something to fix because, you know, after they were in the church and in like the confessional and he said, I can't sleep with you. And she said, well, you know, and it wasn't because of his vows per se. He said, if I do, I'll fall in love with you. Like he had feelings for her. Yeah, I think it's probably something that he used in order to be around her more to justify. Right. For himself, uh, he could tell himself that and that, that it was okay because yeah. he was going to help her. Well, I, I wouldn't say it's not a complex relationship that they had. Um, I think it, ultimately he wanted to reach her and, and, and um, help her and from a very good place. And I think he knew he'd be fighting a battle with his... Um, you know, with his uh, desire, and they just had it clicked, and they had all this tension and whatever. And I think he tried to skirt that line as, as best as he could, and I think it was a battle for him. And ult- he might have lost the battle, but I don't think he lost the war. I think he had this amazing yeah. impact on her. I think it's incredible. Well, I think he ends up doing what he set out to do. I, I think he wanted to help her, and but I think at, at there is a point in the cafe where they have that conversation in it, and it. It turns into like fixing kind of a problem. But we can disagree, guys. <laughs> we can interpret this differently, okay? It's true. Guys, uh, the, uh, the three you of you... You can be wrong and I can be right. It works out. <laughs> hey, it was either yeah. a guinea pig cafe or a cafe for guinea pigs. Yeah. I mean, oh, how do you interpret that? We have not that? talked about Hillary yet. <laughs> I thought it was We've a cafe We've not talked about Hillary yet. Pig. That's why I laughed. Hillary. Oh, man. Yeah, that's why I laughed. Oh, that's so great. So, uh, y'all know me really well. We've been friends for a long time. I hate fart jokes. <laughs> when they get in that elevator and she says, don't be funny and don't talk to anybody, don't be yourself, which Justin tells me that every time I hang out when we're walking up, just so y'all know. But and it's probably good advice. But And then she immediately farts. And then the girl comes in and she goes, um, hello, hello. And then she's like... And it's just the funniest, <laughs> stupidest, best joke ever. Like, who has the range to do fart jokes and then all this other stuff? It's just, oh, this is the best show. Levels to that Phoebe Waller Bridge. So many levels. Man. Yeah. I, I mean, that's, and of course, Claire would have a whole other hour of this podcast just talking about like the way they subvert like gender roles and and like how female centric yeah, everything is and the reversal of like oh. cliches and everything that that that, that absolutely yeah. they do that on purpose too they emasculate the guys and then whatever and they roll and it's so subtle and so funny like like you're right like i was going back and watching this and i was like there's so many i know i'm going to l- listen to this thing why didn't we talk about like harry for instance my favorite thing in the whole my favorite bit in the whole show is where I think we should surprise each other. And it's like a bit like he's got the towel on his head and he's like listing all the por- pornographic searches she did and all that, right? And then that's a perfect example of what you're saying. And then we should surprise each other every day. And she scares him in the shower. <laughs> and he obviously has like a, like a moment of terror. It's so funny. But Harry is this thing of like, you know, just be a guy. Yeah. Just be you know it's like he's such a character yeah. he keeps I mean, leaving things at her house so he can come back yeah. yeah well i think maybe what justin maybe what you were talking about is how maybe a little bit of the edgier to quote tony uh, edgier stuff might be more <laughs> you would typically see that in a male-centric role let's talk about her, you know like is that what you're talking about like her watching oh, yeah. obama's yeah. speech on her laptop <laughs> no, <laughs> no that's no, really all of it yeah no, I mean, like, uh, you know, yeah. watching episode one, the what guy, that guy, all of this. <laughs> 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 but just, yeah, the way that the, the like, I mean, as a whole, just the way that all of the, the female characters have these these rich inner complex lives, and it shows those in great detail. And then until the priest comes along, like I would say, most of the men are just like these cartoonish characters right. that they learn that the women are learn and grow from you know rather than mm. the other way around which is normally like where yeah the the it's just uh, every every woman in in rom-coms is just a tool for men to learn from to right? move the story yeah so they uh, right. the way that they reverse the that and just 
make them these complex characters is is just right. I, I thought the favorite does that too. The movie from last year. Oh yeah, they're pawns, or women are usually pawns, and they this show does it better because yeah, most of the guys are just they can be easily emotionally manipulated, and they're kind of they just kind of move the story along. I, I would and agree. I think it's it's true of uh, like Killing Eve as well. Like it's, it's very interesting. Right. Oh, like definitely. This, really complex female relationship and it just right and you know like subverting the the power that you know men are seen to have over them exactly and they can just uh they can manipulate these guys with sex and other things and they just fall for it every time and and uh i really like that narrative as it's coming along because it's true in a lot of ways um and so yeah i thought that was great uh, do you guys have anything else? We we could have really done a, a podcast on, I think, every episode. Uh, it's just so funny. Just such a good show. If you've not seen this, we spoiled it for you, but go watch it anyways. It's uh, it's just got a, a lot of texture to it. Do you guys have anything else? We really need some kind of, like, spoiler alert uh, episode. <laughs> like, <laughs> tag on. Yeah, tag that, yeah, on tag that like, in the uh, description. And just be like, if you have all watched of our it, podcasts don't worry. On yeah. all of yeah. them. <laughs> yeah, I could do a little front there. Uh, guys, been no, really good. How do, who would thought we could talk for so long about uh, like twelve episode, thirty minute episode? Show. Oh, I could talk I for mean, hours. There's about more, this but show. aren't we keeping this Many a little layers. family friendly? I've I've got other content we could talk about. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. The first text I sent her is like five minutes ago. I was like, this this girl's jerking off the bridal promise page. That is so. I just text back like lines of laughing faces. I was like, it is incredible. Oh my gosh. What are you doing? I'm watching a speech. What was he talking what about? What was he talking about? Democracy. <laughs> Iraq. Uh, oh my god oh harry is terrible so. he's so <laughs> sad sack yeah thank y'all for doing this it's been really yeah. good justin it's probably like two o'clock eastern i don't know it's really time bad. whatever you understand how time zones work <laughs> that doesn't wrap up fleabag but that's going to wrap up our conversation about fleabag watch this show best five hours of your life meredith justin uh, thanks for joining Riley and I on, on this tonight. You guys are always amazing. Yeah, glad to be here. Thanks for having Thanks, me. Thanks, guys. Yeah.